Welcome to the Bible and Me podcast from Precept UK. Being a Christian charity based here in the UK focused on helping you to know God deeply to live differently, we have discussions with some of the greatest modern men and women of God about how their relationship with God's Word, the Bible, has transformed their lives. If you are encouraged by any of the messages in this podcast, it would help us out enormously if you could leave us a review. Or better yet, get involved with God's Word for yourself at precept.org.uk. The opinions and views shared in this podcast do not necessarily reflect that of Precept UK. Now, without further ado, here's Nigel with the latest episode. Well, good morning, uh, everybody. I'm delighted to welcome uh, Dr. Sharon Dirks to the Bible and Me podcast today. Uh, originally from a scientific background, Sharon has a PhD in brain imaging from the University of Cambridge and has held research positions at the University of Oxford here in the UK and also the Medical College of Wisconsin in the US. Sharon's appeared on several BBC programmes, including Songs of Praise, Radio 2's Good Morning Sunday, and Radio 4's Beyond Belief. Her topics of interest focus on science, theology, mind and soul, and the problem of evil. And she speaks and lectures throughout the UK, Europe, and North America. Sharon's married to Conrad, and together they have a daughter, Abby, and a son, Ethan. So welcome to the Bible and Me podcast, Sharon. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Um, Sharon, how did you come to faith in Christ? And also, why are you a follower of Jesus? Yeah, well, I became a, a follower of Jesus as an adult. I grew up in a kind of religiously neutral home. It, uh, religious belief was neither encouraged nor discouraged. Um, and I, as a teenager, began to... Um, Kind of hang out with people that were part of a youth group uh, that was part of a church in the city that I grew up in which was Durham and um, and so I went to this youth group but for me it was kind of ticking a box it wasn't you know there was no kind of heart change in terms of its impact in, on my life. Um, I went I arrived at university kind of an agnostic um, and to study biochemistry so I was very sure that I loved the sciences and I had just done science, you know, science A-levels and was had arrived to study biochemistry. And I, um, along the way, uh, my A-level biology teacher had handed me a book by Richard Dawkins called The Selfish Gene. And essentially this book was kind of um, saying that we were material beings that, you know, and, and um, we had a, there was sort of a material purpose to our lives, but, but, no ultimate purpose beyond that and um although very well written um I, well I kind of absorbed the content of this book and arrived at university kind of assuming that science and God were not compatible with each other that you had to choose between them and very clearly at that point I chose science and um but in the very first week, I was invited to an event called Gorilla Christian, where um, essentially there were four Christians that were um, in this room full of people that weren't Christians and um, taking questions from them. Any You could put your hand up and ask anything. And so I, about halfway through the evening, I went along to this and about halfway through, I put my own hand up and asked a question. Surely you can't believe in God and be a scientist at the same time. And I was given the answer that, yes, you can. That's a bit like choosing between, you know, the programs and processes underlying Instagram and Kevin Sistrom. 
uh, as explanations for why we have Instagram, you know. And so this was very interesting to me. I hadn't heard anything like that before. And it sort of set me on a journey of asking a lot more questions and grilling a lot more Christians until <laughs> about halfway through this degree in biochemistry in Bristol, I got to the point where I didn't have all my questions answered, but I had enough to realize that Jesus actually was was real and that that was a, a thing um, and that he was who he said he was and he offered me forgiveness and new life and and so I kind of I don't know exactly when but probably around Easter of year two in Bristol I became a Christian um, and I guess you asked why uh, do I believe that well I can remember obviously a time a large chunk of my life when I didn't believe that that Jesus was alive and risen and I guess I believe it because it's true because I looked into it because I became persuaded that the evidence pointed to the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead um, and was alive and at work in the world today and I could point to all kinds of evidence for God not that we have conclusive proof but there are in many many indicators that together provide a persuasive picture so that's why wonderful wonderful and we'll talk more about that as we go on through I mean was there was there a change did you did you sense a change in in you um having become a Christian at all I mean I didn't have one of these kind of very dramatic changes in a sense I was kind of quite quite polite, quite hardworking, quite kind of studious before I became a Christian. I, I guess kind of outwardly, maybe not that much change, but, you know, I guess inwardly experiencing forgiveness, experiencing mm. God's help in relationships, which was mm. tricky mm. at the time, um, and his, you know, patience and, the, you know, the, the work of what I now know to be the Holy Spirit in kind of comforting and um, coming alongside me in my life and helping me. And um, so I guess that was the the way, the change that I experienced. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, brilliant. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing, your home and, and school life. Um, where, where, where did you grow up? And, you know, just to give people a sense of that. Yeah, I grew up in Durham. Uh, I went to a comprehensive school in, in Durham. Um, and um, yeah, uh, I was a kind of a fairly standard state school. Um, uh, I don't believe there was a Christian union or anything. Uh, maybe there is now, but I uh, wasn't aware of um, the kinds of questions that were being kind of provoked once I arrived in Bristol. I wasn't aware of any of that at my school in in Durham um I you know, had very nice teachers um yeah uh, um yeah what what yeah. what no yeah I mean yeah so um so uh, yeah up in Durham and uh the brothers sisters um sporty uh, musical that sort of stuff um so I yeah I have a brother uh who lives in Durham I am um I was quite musical. I played the violin. I played in orchestras. I sang in choirs. And I sang Handel's Messiah as a teenager, which was very fun. Um, and, you know, it was just funny looking back to have been singing these words, but not, not believing them, but obviously, you know, with a massive 
it was very impactful to, to be able to be part of that. And yeah, excellent. Now, on leaving school, uh, you studied biochemistry at yeah. Bristol University. And uh, where, as you said, you became a Christian through grilling, grilling a number of Christians. Um, and this was followed by a year working in Switzerland. Um, after that, you, were, you came back to the UK to Cambridge University yes. and you did a PhD in fmri which i had to look up i have to confess okay. um functional magnetic resonance imaging of the brain <laughs> um tell us a little bit about your work at cambridge and how did what you learnt impact your understanding of god hmm. well that's a great question um so well functional mri is um, a particular type of mri and mri is a an amazing technology that was invented in the, I don't know, the 60s, I think it was, um, that enables you to look inside the human body without cutting into it, which means you can look in inside the bodies of healthy people as well as people who are not well. And uh, it uses the, the natural water that is already in your brain, bound up in lots of different ways that appears differently in an MRI scan. You basically can get a picture of somebody's brain. And um, functional MRI is looking at brain function, which um, uses the magnetic properties of your blood that change when your body, when your brain is active in doing a particular task versus when it's resting. And you can subtract active from resting and get a map of the areas that are activated. And of course, all kinds of studies have been done looking at vision, cognition, um, you know, motor function, tumor displacement, you know, I mean, I mean, it's moved from the kind of basic research into looking at disease states, and then looking at the effect of different drugs on the brain, and, mm. and so on. And actually, one of my postdoc positions was looking at human cocaine abuse, looking at the effect of cocaine in, in the, the brain of people who have an addiction versus um, people who don't. And uh, yeah, Fascinating. fascinating area and a massive privilege to have been able to work in that area yeah and and what about how how did this um work help you understand anything about god yeah, yeah. so i mean when i started my phd in cambridge i was a young christian i had been a christian for two years by that point and um, yeah, the start of my PhD was quite rocky. Um, it, it could have gone either way. I could have actually just left and not even bothered. Um, but I actually felt, it's one of the times I felt God spoke to me quite clearly through the words of a, a song that I was singing in, in, in a church that I'd gone to at that point and I was trying to figure out what to do. And, you know, the, the words which actually point to some words of Jesus that say that with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And I felt that he told me quite clearly to stay. So I did. Um, and that he was going to make it make possible what seems impossible um, in terms of what can be achieved with man. And so I knuckled down and, um, you know, various people came to my help over several years and I ended up with a, a PhD and um, the, th the thing that I learned about about God is that from that experience and a number of other 
points is that, you know, it says in Psalm 8, when I consider the heavens, the moon and the stars that you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? You know, there's the creator of the cosmos. And yet he seems to also care about individual people's lives. And we hold together these two things. And the thing that I learned is that the creator of the cosmos actually cared about my life and cared about whether I was sat typing numbers into an Excel spreadsheet or staring at a, you know, an MRI image or whatever it was, that this God that created the universe, created time and space, cared about me as well. And that was one thing that I took away. And he helped me to complete this PhD. Mm. Wonderful, wonderful. Now, you continued your academic studies in postdoctoral research after your time in Cambridge, both in the US at the Medical College of Wisconsin and then at Oxford University. And then for a number of years, you worked for the uh, Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics, OCA. Um, tell us a little bit about your work uh, w- uh, at OCA and your, your sort of role within it. What is OCA for those that may not know? And and because you, you were there for some time, and and your 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 work with them. Yes, yeah. Um, uh, so Oka is a a centre that um, trains um, people to respond to the difficult faith questions being asked, and they also go out and respond themselves to them. You know, by giving lectures or talks or podcasts or. Uh, you know, in the media, in, in, in all kinds of different settings, in schools, in the media, um, in universities, business, uh, workplace situations, um, conferences and so on. So it's a centre that at its heart is trying to respond to the cultural questions and, and the ultimate goal being so that people can see Christ more clearly, so that they can have more likelihood of considering a relationship with him, I think. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. My my role at Ocker was um, I mean, I was a, a speaker and lecturer there for um, 12 years. Mm. And uh, I'm essentially in a new season of um continuing to speak and write um mm. more in a freelance capacity, but I'm still an adjunct lecturer with Ocker, still very much friends with the team there and supportive of, of all that they are doing. Mm. My niece, um, sorry, the, my, my nephew was married to a lady called Ellie Montgomery, who, oh, yes. worked, who worked there for a while. Uh, yes, uh, I old... remember you saying, yes, I knew Ellie. Yeah, the yeah. old Ellie. Now, um, we've heard in the news, um, just heard that those professing to be Christians in the UK have fallen below 50% for the first time. Uh, I've got some questions related to this. Um, why do you think this is? Well, yes. I mean, I think, first of all, I would say that those figures are not a surprise. I think that that kind of matches. In fact, in a way, it feels kind of optimistic based on my kind of pr- practical experience. I don't feel like 46% of the people around me are professing Mm. committed Christians I would actually say that it's lower than that but uh, I recognize also that there are different places that in my experiences to greater or lesser degree and and different social um, demographics that might experience it in different ways as well Um, but I think that it well it I think for several reasons that is the case and people 
are um, kind of not convinced that Christianity has anything relevant to say to them in their situation. Mm. Um, and I think it's it's probably not helped by the fact of it of there being many stories of um, Christians that have failed or leaders that have failed or Christians that have been involved in abuse of, of some kind um, that people actually le lean towards the view that not only is this irrelevant, that it's actually harmful and I'd rather not go near it with a barge pole and uh, or perhaps even the Christians in their life are have have been disappointing or have let them down i mean i'm speaking very generally here i think that we are of course of course we've been watching a decline mostly although there is revival in certain areas an increase but we've been watching a decline for for decades from from the church um and so i think there are multiple reasons but and that has led to people you know a general the youngest generation now being almost pre-christian in their in their kind of general knowledge about the christian faith and, and therefore maybe they're just more likely to get their information about it from unreliable sources and form a view that way on the plus side it means that we are freer to proclaim the gospel in a new way and and freely in but in not in a way that needs to kind of undo misunderstandings because you're starting from a completely blank slate i guess yeah 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 what 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 can we christians do about this would you say what what can we do practically about it seeing these figures because um, it grieves us you know it grieves us you know we want people to to know the lord and his grace and mercy in in their lives and uh you know it's so sad when you when you hear figures like that and uh what what can we do about it? I think if it doesn't start with do, it starts with um, what do we actually believe to be true and how do we live in such a way that brings our life in line with our beliefs? And that is ultimately what um, discipleship is all about, what kind of it means to become more like Jesus. You start living what you believe. And so what do we believe? Well, I mean, I believe it, it begins with that we believe that the words of God are true. They're not just made up. They're not culturally contingent. And of course, there are some different interpretations on, on certain things. But I think that um, I think there's been a, a degradation in people's willingness to kind of accept the words of God as being um, authoritative and, and true. And that has even been the case amongst some Christians the second thing I would say is that um, you know do we believe that the gospel is still the power of God to save that people are far better off knowing God than not knowing him and of course that can be harder in the west where people who don't believe in God seem to do pretty well and, and actually you know in some ways morally put Christians to shame in terms of the way that they live and their concern for others and the environment and so on. It can be hard to see what, what a Christian has to offer, but if actually we're talking about something that goes way beyond simply what you can see with your eyes, then I think it, and that the deepest need of the human heart is not something that the material world can reach or fix, then the gospel still has relevance. But I think there needs to be a regaining of confidence in that, 
And then thirdly, a confidence in knowing how to share the gospel. Uh, because there's a lot of guilt and fear that surrounds this area. Um, I think trying to lift the lid on the pressure pot and, and the kind of guilt that people feel, but to try and create a sense of vision for what's happened in the past and in, in this nation and others and um, how each person has a part to play. And it doesn't necessarily mean you're on a platform proclaiming to dozens or hundreds or thousands but actually the gospel is shared one person at a time. And I was really struck actually even just reading this morning how Jesus sends out the 72 and he sends them out in pairs. And the primary way that um, the gospel was shared in, in Jesus' time when he was still around even was, you know, in pairs, on the ground, organic relationships. and But with power and compassion and actually not not being ashamed of saying the kingdom of heaven has come near to you it is found in jesus there is life in him that you won't find anywhere else and mm -hmm. i think for christians and for the church in general to regain a, a sense of confidence and urgency about the the news that we have is is really what is needed and it's putting mission and evangelism in the UK, not mm. just abroad, mm. front and centre again. And I think yeah. we will see. Yeah, wonderful. Having a confidence in the scriptures and the power of the gospel. Amen to that. Now, you wrote your first book uh, called Why? Looking at God, Evil and Personal Suffering in 2013, which tells stories of people who have suffered. And the book takes a practical look at some why questions on suffering um how do you reconcile the question of a god who loves with such suffering that we see mm. well that's a, a huge question um i think that um on one level if god doesn't exist we need to first of all i mean i mean first of all it's probably important to say there are no easy answers to this and um, the way that I wrote why and indeed a, a new book coming out is to engage with people's actual lives and, and to say that any answer that we give has to kind of be able to come to land in the gritty reality of the, the awful things that we experience and have to live through. Um, but I suppose at the, the bottom line in terms of how I respond to this is that if God doesn't exist, how do people respond to the question of suffering? And if God doesn't exist, then we are left with material explanations. We are left with kind of the forces of nature and cause and effect and accidents just happen. And this is just the way the world is. You know, um, DNA occasionally makes mistakes because of the large numbers involved in our, on our planet and in the human body and so on. And accidents happen. And, um, you know, if you eat a poor diet, all your life you're more likely to develop illnesses of various types and we can look to scientific explanations and they can tell us a certain amount and those those things are not unhelpful but they don't really deal with the rawness of how we feel when we're asking why or why me and the truth is that when we object to suffering we are saying that there's something wrong with the world yeah. and we're saying in a sense that I mean, we can go in, into this so much, but we're sort of crying out to an, an objective standard. We're saying that there's 
in order because we're saying there's something wrong with the world along with that comes the fact that there's some there's a standard of goodness that is not being met mm -hmm. that's making us angry mm. and sad and um and that that standard of goodness is not simply down to personal preference or cultural situation it's actually something that sits outside of time and history and actually the christian would say well that standard is found in god that god is good but evil also exists and wreaks havoc with the world in all kinds of ways in terms of how people behave and treat each other in terms of our bodies and potentially as well in terms of the natural world. So how, even though we start the question saying, well, if, if there's suffering in the world, you can't possibly believe in God. Mm -hmm. Actually, you can end up turning that on its head and saying, look, it's only if God exists that we have a basis for a home for our feelings of rawness and sadness because it's right there's something wrong with the world. Um, and that's um, because not only does God exist who is good, but evil also exists. Mm. But Jesus has stepped in and done something about that by suffering himself. And I guess at the heart, we, the Christian can say that God himself has suffered and in his suffering has taken the wind out of the sails of evil so that whatever we go through it doesn't have to have the last word in our lives and mm -hmm. and so we we follow a god that is not aloof or distant or indifferent to our suffering but he has entered into it in extraordinary mm -hmm. ways and suffered like us and for us mm -hmm. to rescue us and so i find that the christian faith doesn't shy away from the question of suffering it faces it head on it doesn't tell you it's just the way the world is chin up live well um because it's the only life you get it says actually no there's something wrong you're right to sense that you're right to be angry um and god it has come close to you and wants to come alongside you in your suffering and bring you mm. comfort and strength and hope mm. wonderful yeah so those of you that may be listening i i hope that that has brought some encouragement to you that, that God himself has suffered in the person of Jesus. He's not aloof from it. He's experienced it. He's done something about it, ultimately, eternally. Absolutely. Now, your second book written in 2019 called Am I Just My Brain? examines questions of human identity uh, from the perspective of neuroscience, philosophy and theology. So what inspired you to write this book? Well, I think that um, questions of whether you are your brain seem to come up quite a lot and seem to come up um, in popular write, science writing a lot. And, and we've got this notion that if your brain, that your brain does things um, and, and, and I think the language that we can use can be confusing because Actually, the truth is we do things, but those things are mediated in our brains. There is a, a, you know, there is a correlation of brain activity for everything that we do and think and say and so on. So clearly the brain is extremely important. But is it right to say that the brain is the person? Because that seems to be what uh, the message is in some arenas. Mm. Not every arena, but certainly from some scientists and philosophers. But of course, that isn't the case. And you don't need to leave neuroscience to make the point because um, we don't just have a brain, we also have a mind. 
um, you have you know your brain with all of its neurons and synapses and chemicals, the physical processes in your head. But then you have your mind with all of its thoughts and feelings and emotions and memories. And there's something that it is like to be you that actually just measuring the activity in your brain doesn't capture. You know, if we were to try and do a study of what it's like for you to record your next podcast, Nigel, and we were to, you know, hook an EEG cap on onto your scalp and measure some signal and put you in an MRI scanner and take some structural and functional scans, we get some very interesting data from your brain. But would it, that tell us what it is like for you to record your next podcast? It wouldn't. To find out what it's like for you, we need to ask you. And so there is information that is you that can't be accessed by simply measuring your brain. And so this is the point that I make in various different ways to say that we are far more than just our brains. We have a mind. Some people, um, we could also argue that we have a soul, but some people might say, well, the soul is the mind and it's just different language to describe the same thing. But of course, and we could talk about that, but then also as a Christ, as Christians, we have a spirit and everyone has a spirit with a small s again there's an inner reality there's a you but to become a christian is to um enable the uh, is to allow the holy spirit to kind of come and kind of live within you and that kind of breathes life into your brain and your mind and your soul um depending on what you believe about the soul and so we're yeah, yeah. The, the, the point of the book is that we are holistic beings. We can't be spliced into just one section. And, you know, to look at human beings just through the lens of the brain is to offer a diminished view of what it means to be a human being. Yeah. We are complex, we are holistic, and we need explanations of human identity that capture that complexity and, and holism. so who controls us and 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 i've got another sort of funny well sort of you know what happens when we die Mm. well so i mean in terms of who controls us um one of the corollary corollaries or one of the consequences corollaries Corollaries, thank you (laughs) Um, of um the view that you you are your brain and that your brain drives everything about you is that the choices you make are not actually from you, they're from your brain, and therefore you're being driven by forces beyond your control. And at, at its extreme is known as hard determinism. And at its extreme becomes impossible, you know, to raise serious questions about moral responsibility can people be held morally responsible for their actions, good or bad, if it's not them that's doing it, it's their brain. Mm. So this is actually a very um, important area to address. And I suppose those uh, the hard determinists would say their brain controls them. Um, and also other forces from their upbringing and, uh, and cultural context and so on. These all kind of form who they are. But um, I think that if it's the case that we're not just our brains, that there is a you that kind of makes decisions, then we could say, although that there are things that are mediated by the brain and although the brain does have some kind of 
automated function in terms of reflex responses and subconscious processes, there is still volitional choice uh, within human beings that gives them dignity and meaning that when you make a choice, it is actually you that makes it, mm. um, even though there is correlation in your brain mm. with that choice. Mm. Um, so I would say that we we control us, actually. <laughs> uh, we get to choose and make, make choices that are from us, that are meaningful, which... And I believe that to be God-given. I believe that that is part of the way he wanted to dignify human beings is actually to enable them to meaningfully choose things, anything from what am I going to eat for breakfast to what am I going to do with my life and what am I going to believe? Um, yeah. 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 No, that was costly. That was God-given. <laughs> and dying? What happens when we die? <laughs> well no, i mean um, there's a christian there's a christian worldview on that of course isn't there of course there is i want to say that christians believe in life before death not simply after um that actually to be a christian is to welcome the kingdom of god on earth um not Amen. simply be waiting for a ticket to heaven mm. um which is why christians get very involved in trying to make this world a better place um but of course, Jesus um, was very clear that he said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Mm. And he actually um, went on to be the forerunner of uh, that reality by dying and rising again three days later and um, rising physically, not just spiritually. Uh, he was, he, you know, he was a, a natural person. He ate, he drank, he sat down. He, but he also had a supernatural dimension to his body that he was not always recognizable in the way that he was uh, before he died. Um, he could move through walls and appear and disappear. Things that kind of seem a bit crazy and Stranger Things esque, I guess. Um, mm. But um, so that that actually there is. Uh, eternal life begins the moment you just say yes to Jesus and believe and decide to follow him mm. and it begins in this life but it continues beyond the grave it's powerful enough to continue and carry us through death and out the other side and um, that is what happens when you die I believe and um, there are all kinds of very interesting data sets now um, showing, um, you know, on the subject of consciousness that or it's suggesting that even, you know, patients in the state of reversible clinical death have continued to be conscious. Not all of them, but some are reporting this. And this is very interesting in light of what Christians believe, because what Christians believe is that when the brain dies, that's not the end of you. Um, so this is a very interesting data set coming from neuroscience and clinical uh, clinical neuroscience that is, gives us pause for thought again when, when we're faced with materialistic views that say, no, when you die, that's it, end of everything, oblivion. Well, there's some interesting things coming even from clinical medicine that suggests that might not be the case. Mm, wow, wow, wow. So interesting. Now, because of the work that you do, I, I I was putting myself in the position of of the listeners here, and I've got some sort of quick fire questions for you. Okay, okay, because okay, right. So, um, 
and you sort of almost answered the first one already. So is a belief in God incompatible with being a scientist? Not at all, no, because it's like, uh, let me give you another analogy. It's like um, choosing between, you know, Microsoft Office, the programming languages underlying it and Bill Gates as the reason that it exists. And of course, you think about that for a minute and say you don't need to choose. They are two parallel explanations. One is describing the undergirding mechanisms and the other describes the one whose idea it was. And there have been many scientists who um, uh, who have, it was their belief in God that prompted their exploration of the natural world and made some extraordinary discoveries. You could even make a case that it's only if God exists that you can provide the best explanations for why there is an ordered uh, world capable of study and for why we have rational minds capable of making sense of it. So not only are they compatible, but you could argue it makes more sense. The scientific principle makes more sense if God exists than if he doesn't. Excellent. Right. Next question. <laughs> um, you can either be a person of intellect or a person of faith but not both. How would you respond to that? Yeah, I would say that um, everyone has faith in something, um, mm. not just religious people. If you take the straightforward meaning of faith to be trust in something or someone, we all put our trust in all kinds of things. And we do so on the basis of evidence. We don't do it in an unthinking way. We look at the case for it and decide. So we put our trust in aeroplanes and get on them and fly in a tin can through the sky because of the high rates of success and the low rates of things going wrong. Extremely low, given what's happening. And so we put our faith in that process because of the evidence, similarly with surgeons or with relatives you know we might have a low level of faith in a friend or relative because they've disappointed us or let us down but that's that's not an unthinking thing that's based on the evidence and it's actually the same with with god people put their faith in jesus christ based on the evidence for him being this extraordinary man that um treated people with dignity and restored people into society and healed their diseases and raised them from the dead and lived in a way that no one else had seen when they put their faith in him it was on the basis of that evidence mm. it wasn't an unthinking blind faith that takes an irrational leap into the dark and believes something impossible and so when jesus asks us to put our faith in him he doesn't ask us to do something unreasonable or unthinking he says examine the evidence and go where the evidence leads and today we don't have jesus in front of us but we have the, the the words of god in the bible that if you want to throw them out as unreliable you will have to throw out every other historical document that there is and that's a whole nother conversation but there's also the evidence of nature you know we look at blue planet frozen planet um life on earth and so on and we just think my goodness how on earth could this have happened um, purely by accident? Um, and then, of course, there's the evidence of what people say God is doing in the world today, suggesting that he's not dead, but actually very much alive and at work and transforming people's lives and healing and um, just giving people strength that they never knew they could have. And um, there are all kinds of evidence that we can 
look at books we can read websites we can go to podcasts we can listen to that point to that evidence mm. and the question is are we willing to examine it and at least give the christian faith a hearing rather than dismiss it out of hand as being something unthinking and irrational yeah excellent i, I was going to ask you but you sort of hinted at it you know how how can I know for certain that, you know, that Jesus actually lived, that he actually died, that he actually rose again? And you sort of hinted there, there are lots of yes. things you can investigate. Yes, and there are a number of people that set out to disprove the resurrection um, and ended up becoming persuaded, having examined the, the alternative explanations for the, the fact that Jesus had risen. Things like the disciples stole the body or um, the Romans kind of lied, the disciples lied and, and so on. All kinds of alternatives and became, you know, people have looked into these and become persuaded that the best explanation is that he actually rose. Uh, people like that include Lee Strobel, who was a Chicago Tribune journalist who wrote a book, The Case for Christ. There's also a movie about that now on Netflix called The Case for Christ, mm. uh, which I is um, I you know, really recommend you watch if you're interested. But his book, The Case for Christ, I recommend. And there are all kinds of equivalent books like that. Um, there's Who Moved the Stone by Frank Morrison. Um, there's also, um, well, uh, um, Gary Habermas has written a lot on... The, the resurrection as well and would really recommend his say that work. Name. Say a, that name again. Barry Habermas, H-A-B-M-E-R-A-S. Oh, sorry, H-A-B-E-R-M-A-S, Habermas. Um, there's a debate between him and Anthony Flew um, entitled Jesus Rise from the Dead, I believe, which presents the data very uh, compellingly which I would also recommend. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, how would you respond to the person who says, look, I'm fine. I've got a lovely family. I've got a nice home. I've got a good job. My kids are great. I've got money in the bank. I don't need God. What would you say to them? Yeah. Um, I would say that um, that's wonderful and we're not about kind of trying to make people miserable in life and or even that you have to be having some sort of crisis in order to qualify for a, considering the Christian faith but if it's true that someone has risen from the dead and said that whoever follows them the same will be true for them then we're talking about things that go beyond simply our relationships and our achievements and our possessions we're talking about is their life beyond the grave and i i think that's worth consideration and especially if life is going well because often what we what we lack is somebody to thank for for when life is going well and actually i believe that that god blesses people and um and that there is someone to say thank you to someone that loves you and has um, actually come to earth that's what we celebrate at Christmas to live and to to die for you to say that actually um, 
that, that humans are um, people and individuals are worth so much more than just the sum of their achievements and possessions. There's an inherent dignity and value that he has come for. Uh, and there's also a, a, a brokenness that even in a successful life, there are things that we wish weren't the way that they are. And, and he gives that a name and says, look, humans are sinful. There's a brokenness in the human heart that actually only God, only the goodness of God himself can fix. And for that, we, we do need someone coming in from outside to do something that we can't do for ourselves. And there's uh, Christianity and the person of Jesus offers forgiveness. He offers a, a, a clean slate, a, a new start, a new beginning. He offers life in all its fullness, a life and a peace that this world can't offer, however successful we may be. And, you know, there are a num number of people that have climbed to the top of their profession, they've achieved everything they wanted to, and they got there and realized that there was still an emptiness, there was still something missing. And actually, we don't have to do that. We don't have to follow in their footsteps. There is a, actually, it's possible to just say yes to God before you get there and then you have someone to walk with someone to thank for the things that he's blessing you with in your life and and um someone to be with you when there are valleys and they they do come eventually for for us all absolutely um, yeah a absolutely yeah 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 definitely and uh, you just reminded me so much of John 316 you know for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him and that's the key isn't it is to believe in the person of jesus why he came who he was who he said he was what he what he did um that he took our sin upon himself i mean what an incredible gift mm. you know he took our sin upon himself so that yeah. we our relationship with god could be restored yeah. And that life, that the life that only he can give um, is given to us. And so that we have life, as Jesus said in John 10, 10, in all its fullness yeah. now and, and forever. So it's belief in the person of Jesus. So I often say to people, you know, check out the person of Jesus, check him out. And clearly you've done that a lot <laughs> and come to that conclusion and uh, helping other people to to um, investigate the claims and the person the person of Christ. Now, I know you're busy and you, you're a freelance speaker and author. I uh, just want to give us a taste of the sort of places that you've spoken at. And if you've had any sort of funny, funnies or unusual incidents as you've done that. Um, places that I have, it's funny, but as soon as you ask me to remember, then I suddenly can't remember any. Um, <laughs> I've spoken. <laughs> I, I mean, I've spoken. I've met Claire Balding on the radio. That was a really fun and enjoyable. And I, um, oh, now I, I can't remember where where have I spoken. <laughs> but, well, conf conferences and on the radio and overseas. Yes, yeah, I mean, I've, I, yes, I've spoken in um, lots in the UK in in churches in schools. Yeah. Um, in uh businesses mm. um mm. i've spoken i've spoken in the sears tower in chicago if that's kind of nice <laughs> view out of the window uh, <laughs> i've actually spoken on the streets of chicago which was even more interesting and um 
I've yeah spoken a few few different places in in the states. Um, yeah. Spoken in Europe, in in um, Romania, in um, um, yes. Now I'm blanking again. Yeah, lots. So are you are you are you generally well received, or do you have sort of rotten eggs and tomatoes thrown at you on occasion? It depends where where I'm speaking. Um, I uh, I think that no, in general, people are quite quite respectful and, and civil, but they will feel free to ask their questions mm. honestly. And but we encourage that. Yeah. And actually, I consider it a compliment, really, if someone asks me a a robust question after a talk, because it means they've listened and they're engaging and. Mm. they have every right to ask their question and so yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I welcome that Absolutely. yeah sure sure now you're married you have two children uh you cite among your hobbies uh the swiss alps running learning writing and hanging out the washing that was an interesting yeah, one yeah i don't know did i put that as a hobby or something that i do something that you like doing something well i like, like doing it i don't think it's a hobby it's a necessity <laughs> um but if yeah. I had to choose one household thing that I could do all the time and do nothing else, it would be hanging out the washing. So <laughs> fantastic. Uh, you also mentioned a challenge in your life being your husband's illness. Um, how do you cope with that? Um, yeah, so I, I would want to say also that, um, I mean, it's quite hard to sort of mention in passing really, but um, he... Uh, isn't ill all the time um, he has something that comes and goes and I would say that 95% of the time we have a normal family life but occasionally we have to adjust to a different different kind of life until he kind of gets well again um, and we are very grateful for um, I mean clinically um, standard medical kind of approaches haven't been able to help him um, but cranial osteopathy has. And so what we do is get him osteopathy as quickly as possible. And that seems to set him on track. And after two or three treatments, he he's back to working. So um, I cope with it one day at a time. Um, I cope with it um, by trying to be the person I need to be when he gets unwell and not simply thinking about the inconvenience and the extra things that need to take place. And um, yeah, I'm not sure how, how good a job oh. I do with that, but um, I, I try to um, pray uh, in amongst it um, and yeah, walk with God. Um, yeah. Through it. Yeah. Sure, 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 sure. Now, um, just want to um, turn, if we may, just for the last moments, um, to the Word of God. And obviously, this is called the Bible and Me. The podcast is called the Bible and Me. Um, why is the Bible important to you? Uh, because it's not just words on a page. It's the inspired Word of God, even though its authors are human. Um, it has been inspired beyond them as well. Um but by God and and it is has a timelessness that speaks both to the context in which it's written and also to our situation today it's also a book in which we feature because the final book speaks of events that haven't yet happened 
Uh, and so it's almost it's an alive book. It's it's living and it is still the world's best selling book. Um, <laughs> contrary to probably Western understandings, actually, it's still the most widely read and uh, and um, and people have risked their lives to uh, get this book into the hands of, of people in countries where it's contraband. Mm, absolutely. How do you go about studying it? reading it, studying it. Do you have an, a, an approach to the word of God as you're doing that? How do you go about that? Well, I think it depends on the season and the, the, the time of year. So I'm doing Advent uh, studies at the moment. Um, and other times I will be more praying it than studying it. In fact, I think that's probably where I'm at in general, that rather than wanting to s s study it, I'm actually just wanting to pray it out and pray it into being mm. um and so really enjoying that um mm. that side of things yeah wonderful and when i'm preparing a sermon so i preach in my local church and in other places and you know preparation for a sermon can bring about a good deal of study as well so that goes well a absolutely yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously the work of precept is to help people engage you know, with the word of God and, and I build a bridge between folks who say, oh, I could never read and study the Bible. I leave it to people like Sharon and people far brighter than me. But to try and build a bridge for folks who say, well, I know it's important to read this book, but I struggle to read this book and I need some help to read this book. And so that's what we seek to do as a ministry um, to give them the tools, you know, um, to ask the questions and to, to really engage positively with it. And uh, certainly in my own life, it's, it's been transformative because I I don't have a, a PhD in brain imaging and all those other things. <laughs> um, <Don't need> <laughs> uh, a bear of little brain needs all the help he can get. So um, this way of studying with precept has been so helpful to me um, and, and I know to lots of others. Um, do you have a favorite book or character in the Bible? I don't know. I mean, I, I guess Gideon kept coming to mind as somebody that um, he needed a lot of reassurance and he kept asking God several times and God doesn't kind of get, well, God is patient with him and keeps answering him in a way that is helpful um, in a, and in a clear way. So I, yeah, I, I am grateful for Gideon in the Bible. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, what about a verse? Do you have a, a favourite verse? My favourite passage is, the, you know, Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, whether things in heaven on earth, whether powers, rulers, principalities. All things were created by him and for him. Um, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And that's probably the crux. He is before all things and in him. All things hold together. Um, I think that's just so true. In him, all things hold together. Sometimes it feels like your life's falling apart, but in Jesus, it holds together. Amen. We were, we're doing a study at the moment with some young people. We were looking at um, the fact that Jesus was, you know, before, you know, at the foundation of the world with God. You know, John chapter one, verse one was God was with God. And this young chap on our, our study said, uh, said i like to remember it like this jesus was before was was 
<laughs> I thought, yeah. you know. Yeah, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So what's next? What's next for you? And how, how may we how may folks be praying for you? Thank you. Well, I'm just um winding down 2022. Um my uh, new book on broken um on natural disasters called Broken Planet um is released in February uh of 2023. So I'm gonna be working on promoting that and um getting ready for a number of speaking invitations um coming up in uh the first half of 2023 including a couple of trips to the usa and um speaking um uh, around the uk and into europe as well um so uh, a number of different things to get ready for so if you pray for me that i would be able to really um connect with God, well, really rest over Christmas and also hear from God, connect with him and really be in step with the Holy Spirit as I prepare these new things and on some new topics next year as well. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, we can certainly be doing that. Certainly be doing that. You know, I think uh, back over your story so far, your journey, and uh, I'm sure it was the Lord that led you to go and grill a Christian that day mm, yes probably unbeknownst to you <laughs> and now i'm being grilled yeah so. <laughs> now, now you are the one being grilled <laughs> yeah absolutely fantastic well you know it's it's um praise the lord for all that he has led you to do and your inquisitive mind i think that's what's come across you know you're you're wanting to really search out the, the big questions of life that we've all got but maybe we don't all consider yeah. And um, and clearly the Lord is using you in a mighty way to help people consider these things. And so we will be praying that the book is well received, Broken Planet, coming out in February, and that you have safe travels. And that um, uh, through your speaking engagements, people have a clearer understanding of who God is, who Jesus is, and that they might examine the claims of Christ and coming to the kingdom as well. So Absolutely. I'm really grateful for this time. Honestly, it's it's. Uh, I know I know you're busy, and uh, so and I'm sure that folks listening, you folks listening, will have really enjoyed listening to Sharon this morning. So thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Nigel. <laughs>